Last week, or the week before, I made a comment about, you know, that there's sometimes there are pastors who they wait until the last minute to come in. They don't hear the worship. They're not engaged in the worship and how I don't do that. But I did it this morning um, and afterwards, and, but I have a good reason for it. I actually, um, uh, I think I'm on day two of a 48-hour flu. And so I'm hiding from everybody right up until the moment I can get up on stage. And uh, so I made it through, I made it through the first service. Okay, I didn't fall asleep. Um, some of them did, but I didn't. I made it through the whole way. Um, and and uh, you're welcome to do that as well. I know some of you know that. The, um, uh, as we are, <clears throat> as we're jiving, jumping into First Peter, um, so if this isn't the most dynamic sermon you've ever heard, um, that's going to be my excuse today. Um, okay, so in First Peter, First Peter chapter 1, verse 1, I'm going to read down through verse 7. Peter, an apostle of Jesus Christ, to those who are elect exiles of the dispersion in Pontus, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, and Bithynia, according to the foreknowledge of God the Father and the sanctification of the Spirit, for obedience to Jesus Christ and for sprinkling with His blood, may grace and peace be multiplied to you. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, according to His great mercy. He has caused us to be born again into a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead to an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled, and unfading, kept in heaven for you who by God's power are being guarded through faith for a salvation ready to be revealed in the last time. In this you rejoice, though now for a little while, if necessary, you have been grieved by various trials so that the tested genuineness of your faith, more precious than gold, which perishes though it is tested by fire, may be found to result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. Now, not, not every section, I'm assuming, not every section of 1 Peter um, will, be, uh, will demand the type of depth that the first part has. I don't think um, even if we wanted to, we'd be capable of it. As Paul pointed out a few weeks ago, it would take us about five years to go through in the six-word uh, segments. Um, but but some of the, especially some of this early material, especially as Peter is laying a foundation for his letter, and for the theology that, he wants to, theology that he wants to shepherd us into in this letter, um, it's really pretty amazing. We're going to be un- un- looking under every stone. Um, and there's wriggling and abundant life in every inch of soil that we uncover in these verses, I'll tell you. It's, it has been amazing to me already. <clears throat> um, I've, never, I've never taught through an epistle, meaning a letter, of one of the apostles on my own time frame, not, not feeling rushed, not having to hurry through it, having a certain number of hours, a certain number of weeks. <clears throat> and I've been stunned at how the gospel is woven into every phrase, sometimes every word. So as we jump into verse 3, blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. What a great blessing. We pray, we, we often sing and pray that we ask that God would bless America, for example. And here you have the Hebrew mindset of though it is our job really to proclaim His blessedness, and that's even a higher calling. And this phrase is only used in reference to God. This isn't a phrase that just means worthy of praise, blessed, or it doesn't just mean happiness or good news. It means in a status of being praised, of that is, it is praised be, blessed be, worshipped be, um, the Apostle Paul uses it as well a few times, like in Ephesians 1, 3, 
Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places. I love the idea, by the way, of every spiritual blessing. It'd be fun to unpack that some other time, but that's for a study of Ephesians, not now. Um, I get confused, I will tell you. So sometimes I get confused. This may help you. If you've ever tried to dive into the, the Greek roots of some of these words when you're studying Scripture, and if you use commentaries, a lot of times they will. But sometimes I get confused by the common roots in Greek because I, I don't languages don't come naturally to me, and I'm a novice, especially at Greek. Um, and so my natural tendency, my temptation is to see a word that I recognize, and I see a root that I recognize in a word, and I think, oh, it must be basically the same word. So because that's the same root. But by that standard, biology and biography would be the same word. Um, and they're obviously not the same word. They mean something very different than the other, each other. And so as we dive into this, we're going to be looking at some of these different words and these different roots um, in this section. Um, this one, the word blessed, though it has some common roots, it is a totally different word than the word, for example, Jesus uses in the Beatitudes when he says, blessed are the merciful, or blessed are those who mourn. It's a totally different word. It's also a totally different word than the one used for Mary in Luke 1. Blessed be you among women, and blessed is the fruit of your womb. It's not the same word. This is a special word that is, that is set aside for God alone. Charles Ellicott is one of the theologians and, and um, uh, commentary writers that I will look to a lot. I think we've got one of him. Uh, he wrote, in the 1800s, I think we need to bring those callers back in. I was telling the first hour, like, I think we need to, we need to go for that. Um, the, um, but here we have him saying this about this passage. In that this form implies that blessing is always due on account of something inherent in the person. The idea of blessing God is, of course, holy Hebrew. This idea that God is somehow different than us, transcendent from us, greater from us, and our job is to, is to pour our lives into Him, is to look to Him and to invest in Him and to put our lives there now, it's a very Hebrew mindset. Verses always saying, what can we get from God? What can, we, what can we get from the source of God? But also that we're saying, you know, how do I live a life that blesses Him? Because He is blessed. This is the standard that He lives in. This is who He is. Peter and Paul, as Jews, continue to worship the Father in spirit and in truth, even though they are now also Christians, although they understand that Jesus is Lord. Speaking of the Trinity, we never worship uh, one member of the Godhood or the Godhead um, at the expense of the others. We never need to do that. It's not necessary. We don't worship the Father at the expense of the Son or the expense of the Spirit or, or any of the others. It's not how that works. They point to one another all the time. They're always in Scripture. The Father's pointing us to the Son and the Spirit and the Spirit to the Son and the Father and the Son to the Father and the Spirit. They, it's important. For a long time, um, I understood the Trinity to be purely academic. I was like, okay, so God is three and one. I mean, great. That's, that's, I'm so glad we know that. It didn't mean anything to me. But then to understand as time went on, I always wrestled with this idea that how can God be love when, it, when there was a point at which it was only God? How can God be charitable, um, giving, sacrificial when there's just God? Before God created anything, there was just Him. And so how could He be that way? Well, if you are by your own nature three and one, you can be sacrificial and giving and, and deferential and all the different things that are there. And I think it is intriguing, that especially because of the Jewish roots, there's always this added sense of uh, a sense of humility due us 
before the Almighty Father. He is praised. His word is power. I got asked uh, this week by somebody the question, who created God? Um, this, is a, this is a kind of a fun question. My, my dad used to jokingly say, like, I wonder what it was like when God was a kid. Um, but the, the picture to understand that, that God is the definition, what it means to be God is to be a self-existent and necessary being. That God only, The only reason anything exists is because God exists. It's actually one of the great apologetic questions. Why is there something rather than nothing? There needs to be, in order to have something, you've got to have something that doesn't depend on anything else to exist. That thing is God. God exists because He exists. That's who He is. He is, He said, I am because I am. I am that I am. That's who He is. He is independent, self-existent, and necessary. If He doesn't exist, nothing exists. So there wasn't a time before God. No one created God. If someone had created God, that would be God. That would be the necessary being. But that's not how that works. He is necessary and unique and transcendent. He's greater in a state constantly, never-endingly, eternally worthy of worship and praise. And He is blessed. It's His love for us that makes us special. It's His value of us that makes us sacred. When the limitless, almighty creator of all things says we are special, that's special. Incidentally, one commentator who spent significant time in this sentence, he posed his opinion that this whole epistle, the entire letter of 1 Peter, is actually um, written in accord with the Lord's Prayer. That it links all these different thoughts. Our Father, it goes to the concept of being of, of Him in heaven, of holiness, of His kingdom, of God's will, of the forgiveness of sins, of temptation, and of deliverance. There's actually several biblical passages that, that people can see woven into the entire letter of 1 Peter. It's not surprising. I don't know how much of it, if any of it, is intentional. If, if, if Peter was looking at one of these passages and then writing an entire letter with this, this passage in mind, or I think it's more likely, personally, I think that these just reveal that the words and teachings of Jesus Christ are so ingrained into Peter's thinking and so much like the thread that the Holy Spirit inspires in him. Just like Jesus' words being inspired by the Hebrew Scriptures, Peter's thinking is totally ingrained, is totally integrated with the power of Jesus Christ's words from when he walked with him and talked to them for those three years. And so I think when Peter writes, he has, no, he has no ability to not write the words of Jesus when he's writing truth. He's taking what he learned from his rabbi and weaving them into the stuff that he writes. That's what's going on here. So blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. It may be weird to you, it was to me for a long time, that He is the God and Father of Jesus Christ. Now, Father's not hard for me. That's kind of significant, obviously, that He is the Father of Jesus Christ. Jesus is the only begotten Son. But isn't it weird that He is Jesus Christ's God? I mean, Jesus Christ is God, so isn't it strange? Some of you may remember when we ran into this in the book of John, that one commentator summarized this, I think, beautifully when he said, we get to call God Father because Jesus became one of us. Jesus calls the Father God because Jesus became one of us. Jesus experienced life as a man, and when you experience life as a man, you experience God as God. 
until you are adopted as his son or daughter. It's a cool picture. Okay, jumping down. According to his great mercy, he has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. Now, this passage may feel a little convoluted to our ears, so let me break it down a little bit. There's a what that's happening here. We have a, he has caused us to be born again into a living hope. What do we have a living hope? Why? What motivated that? His mercy did. How was it accomplished for us? Through the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Let's talk about these words for a minute, like mercy. Eleos, um, and I'm going to butcher, luckily there's not many of you who know how to speak Greek either, so I butcher Greek words all the time. Um, But Eleos, here you have the, the Greek word for mercy that actually is the goddess, the spirit of mercy is Eleos. That's who they worshiped for mercy. They have the different gods and goddesses and the different spirits and forms and muses for different things. And so their word, mercy, here is this word. The Roman word is clementia, which actually may be even more helpful for you because it, 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 that's where we get the word clemency. Clemency means relief from punishment. It's, it's what's given to someone who's already been convicted of a crime They've been convicted of a crime, and they've even been uh, given a, a assigned a punishment. But then through clemency, through mercy, they are granted a reduction or a removal of their punishment, a relief from their punishment. This is what mercy is. Mercy is the removal of a punishment, of a justly earned punishment, by the way, of a punishment that, you, that the person absolutely deserves. They've been found guilty, they've been given a punishment, and then they get clemency, meaning it has been reduced or removed from them. That's the idea of mercy, is when we want to, when we're our, because of our heart, we want to remove the consequences of someone's, even their own sin. We remove the consequences of what they're facing, what they're dealing with, sometimes even their own foolishness, that we want to remove those consequences. That's the idea of mercy. And here's what's important about this when it comes to mercy and here, here this heading is this understanding. We are guilty. We start this conversation with God as guilty people, as guilty beings. His mercy doesn't cause us to avoid guilt, so to speak. We are guilty. His mercy is in response to our guilt, our sin and our guilt. He then provides the mercy. This is an important, uh, important idea. It's a, um, wait a second, let me find it again. We are the, as the song says, we are the wretches. There's no moral high ground for us as humans. We don't stand on that now. We never should. It's, it's amazing to me. Every once in a while we'll have a conversation with an atheist or someone else and they'll talk about, they'll want to ask about, and this is a question I'm sure all of you have as well, that it's just amazing that God would allow or would even call upon his people to wipe out the Canaanite culture, for example. And generally speaking, we would go, well, genocide, obviously that's bad. Um, I mean, we are created in his image. He gets to do with us as he wills. He's allowed to wipe us out. He's allowed to bring about our deaths. We bear his image. We're his. He has the authority, power, insight, and knowledge on when we need to die or when we would need to be wiped out. But that's still tough for us. That's still hard for us, isn't it? The idea that he would do that. But what's funny to me is how often we commit that like somewhere some kind of moral high ground when the truth is, we killed the, the Jewish people killed, you know, I don't know, it doesn't say, maybe several hundred thousand Canaanites. They didn't ever wipe them out. But, so for example, several hundred thousand Canaanites at the most, maybe, maybe. Whereas the human race last year alone 
aborted 56 million children. That's more than all other forms of death combined. All other forms of death of human beings combined. And as a race, we wipe out more of ourselves than all other forms of death combined in a given year. That's shocking. You know how the Canaanites and the Jews, you know what they would think of us? They would think we're barbarians. Just like we look back at them and we think they're barbarians. Because the truth is, we're barbarians. The human race is barbaric. We are a barbaric race. We need a Savior to come from the outside and save us. We need someone to give us mercy, though we are barbaric. We're guilty, and we are the wretches, and he gives us this. How? His faith has motivated, his mercy has motivated him to born us again. Do you remember how we struggled with the word faith in the book of John? Because faith is the verb, and yet we don't use faith as a verb. You don't say, you need to faith in Jesus Christ. We say a word like believe. You need to believe in Jesus Christ. But belief is what tough for us because it means a lot of different things. This is similar to that. The verb here is born um, he has been motivated to born us again in this passage. Born is the verb. Ana, which means again. Ganeo, or, or, which means birth or born or created or started. The verb. Um, so I hear that, and so I go to the word. What's the closest word we have to that? We don't even use it normally in English, but we would use the word begat. That God begat us. Um, they caused us to be born again, whatever begat us, which created a, a kind of a weird picture for me in my mind of, of like God literally giving birth. I kind of wanted to avoid that. Um, and in fact, other authors try to avoid that as well, interestingly enough. But we don't get, by the way, though that's not in this section, that's not the word here. I'm going to come back to the word here that's here in First Peter. That actually is the word in James 1, and we do try to shy away from it. James 1 says this, um, 118, of his own will he brought us forth by the word of truth that we should be a kind of first fruits of his creatures. So the authors of the ESV wanted to avoid too graphic a picture there as well, but the phrase brought us forth is the word for a pregnant woman giving birth. So here we do have in this section the, the half-brother of Jesus Christ writing about the fact that we need this experience, that God is going to, in essence, give birth to us into by the word of his truth that we would be first fruits. We look at others. The word Peter is using the anagenesis. Um, it's an interesting term, um, but it does mean the same concept. Again, living, living again. The picture, as Paul was looking it up, Paul did some research on this and discovered that it's sometimes it is used in like cultivation. So the idea is, I don't know if any of the rest of you are trying to do this as well, but um, you take seeds out of a plant and you dry them or store them or freeze them or, or whatever. And then nine months later, whatever it is, six months later, nine months later, you then plant them and they're supposed to anaganesis, be born again, come back to life. It's used in that terminology. These are my zucchini seeds, by the way, which had an absolutely 0% success rate. It was terrible. Luckily, uh, somebody else had the, the Hughes had a zucchini for me. So this is a pea plant, though. But at some point, what happened was you put a, a little, that little dead seed into the soil, and you water it, and that little dead seed, anagonesis, it comes back. It is born again. There's even another word 
So riding with Dr. Bob on Friday, he used the word regeneration. So I looked that one up. We see this word used, for example, in Titus 3, 5 through 7. He saved us, not because of works done by us in righteousness, but according to his own mercy by the washing of regeneration and renewal of the Holy Spirit, whom he poured out on us richly through Jesus Christ our Savior, so that being justified by his grace, we might become heirs according to the hope of eternal life. We'll talk about that. You have heirs here in a minute. But there's even a different word. This is palingenesis. Again, it means essentially the same thing. It's just another word for again, to live again, palin again, genesis, the root genesis. Uh, That idea of again, to live again, to be born again, to be dead and then come back to life. And you'll remember back in the book of John in John chapter 3, that's the image that Jesus uses with Nicodemus, that you must be, all of us needed to be born again. Look how Peter and Paul and James all grasp hold of this idea. And they do so with great conviction. This is a big deal to them. This is one of the things that sets us apart as Christians is this idea that we are born again. We are in need of being born again. It's part of why we do baptism. Part of that picture is to, is to confess. Listen, here's what needs to happen to me. The me who you knew needs to die. And then I need to be raised again into a totally new life. I need to be born again. That's the picture. Why did Peter and James and Paul, why is this such a big deal to them? My guess is it's because they remember who they were. They remember who they were before they were born again. Zealous about the wrong things, passion without direction, like lost sheep, forgiven much, they now love much. We need to look around and see that too. I'm certainly concerned for my country in the direction that it's going. I see the worldview shift that's happening and I think it's very unhealthy. But if anything good will come from it, it'll be this that we as Christians will sit up and take notice that we need to live according to our new life. The old life won't cut it. The old life is not going to work in the new world. Between the thousand-pound congregational Christians, we've talked about that, those who sit and demand more spiritual calories but almost never burn any, or the practical atheists, Some of us in here are like the practical atheists. If you followed us around all week and you followed an atheist around all week, you wouldn't have enough evidence to tell which was the Christian and which was the atheist. Or even worse, I don't know if it's worse, the parasitic pew-swapping church connoisseurs. I was kind of in a mood when I wrote that. who just go from place to place, it's like, they're, it's like they're, they're trying to get something exactly the way they want it, just the, everything cooked exactly right, and not every bit of the experience precisely perfect, and it's exactly what I need as a family. And, not, and, and these three, by the way, these three tend to live alongside each other and often are the same person. The thousand-pound congregationalist, listen, church is not going to give you a new life. It's not capable of doing it. If your uncle gave lots of money to the fellowship hall, that's not going to give you a new life. If you're, if you're a, a, a person who lives in Tyler, Texas, in the middle right here of the Bible Belt, it's not going to give you a new life. Only the resurrection of Jesus Christ can purchase for us a new life, and we accept that free gift from Him. 
These words matter. I'm sure, but all the passages are creating an understanding. Each of these different ideas, each of these different Greek words are creating the same understanding. We need newness. We need to be new, like a plant pressing up through the dirt, like a baby being brought forth, born again. Matthew 19, 28. Look at this verse. I'm going to show you something that's very fascinating to me. Jesus said to them, he's talking to his disciples, Truly I say to you, in the new world, when the Son of Man will sit on his glorious throne, you who have followed me will also sit on twelve thrones, judging the twelve tribes of Israel. That phrase, in the new world, is one word. It's this very same word that we looked at before. It means to regenerate, to be born again. It's just that word again, palingenesis. It's that word, to be born again. Notice that the, the authors, the translators understand that Jesus here is not just talking about an individual regeneration, but a grand, final, new world. I think it's easy for us to forget that we're new people who are living to be ruling in a new world. That's the plan he has for us. He has big plans, eternal plans. I think we forget that. This is a God who makes things new. I don't know if you look, when you look at your life, what needs to be made new. Obviously, there is the newness of salvation. The first time we are, when we are born again, truly from dead to alive. When that happens, and there's a whole new thing that happens, but, but God continues to bring things to life. This is sanctification. We talked about of the Holy Spirit a couple of weeks ago. The sanctification of the Holy Spirit. New things are brought to life all the time. The way we relate to our spouses becomes new. The way we relate to our children becomes new. What we invest our time and energy in becomes new. The things that, that matter the most to us become new. And many of us need something new. Or we need something in our lives to be made new. And I would encourage you to pray that God would make these things new for you. And, and the things that he's making new, also to understand that this, revolves, this involves a change in us. Um, I was having lunch with uh, Ken Hodge one day. And Ken said, um, do you really think people can change and I said, Ken, my whole life is dependent on the belief that people can really change. I'm all in when it comes to change. If people can't change, my entire life is a waste of time. I firmly believe it. I believe, and I believe as humans, there's some things we can actually just change. I think we can change some habits. I think we can change some lifestyles. I think we can change some decisions. I think we can change where we invest. But we don't really make things new. Only God does that in us. Now, He offers ways for us to do that, but there are ways that we can truly experience a newness of life. And that comes through the work of Jesus Christ and nothing else. This is a God who makes things new. And born where? Born again into what? Into hope. And not just any hope, a living hope. Not a weak and stumbling hope. Not merely a human hope. Not a political hope. Not a delusional dependence on nonsensical nothing kind of hope. I heard this week um, uh, Al Mohler reference an author, Phil Zuckerman, um, a California professor of secular studies, which, wow, um, is famous for his poetic understanding of the secular life. He writes, and he writes about how beautiful and poetic and wonderful the mysteries of a godless universe can be. His hope is in humanity and in humanism. He's a great writer, 
breaks my heart to read his stuff. He writes about goodness. And every time I read it, I think, what do you mean by goodness? Is this just Dr. Zuckerman's definition of goodness? Whose whose definition are you using? Here's a quote from him. Humanist principles, especially those that emphasize human worth and dignity, the imperative to respect human rights, the reverence for life, the intrinsic ability of humans to be caring and just, provide the foundations of a secular moral orientation. I think he's using words that he doesn't know what they mean. He doesn't really understand it. Human value is an imperative. An imperative from whom? There has to be a source for an imperative. Dr. Zuckerman, is he the source for the imperative? It's intrinsic, meaning it just transcends their value in and of themselves. It's a treasure level value. They're just valuable because they're precious and treasure. Because who says? I actually snickered when I read the word reverence. The reverence for human life to be worshipped? That kind of stuff breaks my heart. That's a dead hope. If if your best shot is human beings, good luck. When you look out and you meet humans and you know humans as wonderful as we can be, the truth is we're a dead hope. I mean, if the best you've got is you people, (laughs) nothing personal. Have you met you? I come back to this over and over again, this idea, all you have to do is know a few humans, including yourself, to recognize we cannot be the ultimate source of hope for anybody. We need a living hope, a hope that is alive, not just not dead, alive. We are alive and our hope is alive. It's not merely a wish, it's a hope that is very much alive. It's not just, <coughs> and it's not just not dead, which would be bios, It is alive, zoe, the Greek word zoe, the life force, what life really means, alive, not just merely not dead. So how? How are these purchased? Through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead and to an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled, and unfading, kept in heaven for you. Three Greek words here. I should have written these down and put them on the board because it would be better if you could see them. But aphthartan. Um, I told you I'm terrible with this. Amiantan, Amerantan. Anyway, what you notice about them, it's pretty good, not, not bad. What you'll notice is same letter at the beginning and they have the same sound at the end. This was a Baptist sermon. Right here. The three, the, you, got the, you got the alliteration, you've got the words coming together. They look good, they're easy to remember. They could go on a t-shirt. Immortal, untainted, unfading, not losing their brightness. Unlike anything we could invest here on earth, it's meant to be in sharp contrast to our best efforts. Clearly meant to delineate between the inheritance of earth and the one kept in heaven. Inheritance, um, in the Jewish world, the the eldest son would inherit two-thirds of everything, and all the other children would equally split one-third. Which Jesus, I think that you had this, the imagery created by this, and I don't even know what it means that you would inherit from an eternal God anyway, but the idea that we would, there's inheritance or something waiting for us, a good gift waiting for us, and even if we're splitting one third of it, we're splitting one third of everything, and that's not a bad, uh, that's not too bad an, an option. We look out at this clearly meant to delineate what better describes, listen, what better describes our efforts here on earth than perishable, defiled, and fading? Isn't that described? Uh, the things we would invest in here on earth, 
We say, but I want what I want. I want the pleasure that fades, that is defiled, that's perishing. If we really had our head screwed on straight, we would ask, is this the best you have to offer? This is it. World, this is it. This is what you got. This is the best you've got. A few seconds of comfort rather than the growth of character, a few instants of pleasure rather than a lifetime of intimacy. We've decided to be satisfied with our exile, I think. We talked about this. I think it becomes too easy. I think it becomes easy, and maybe, maybe that's true for some who are still at home, is that we've grown comfortable in our exile. Remember how heartbreaking it was to realize in the end of Daniel that the king had said people could go back home to Israel, and yet many didn't. Most didn't. What's that like? That's something that needs to change. How do we, we get too satisfied with our exile? Practical agnostics. We're not hungry enough. We're not lonely enough. The world hasn't run out for us yet, and we're settling for something. We've been inoculated. What a weird thought to be inoculated against life. Inoculation is we get just enough of a dead virus to keep you from catching the disease. And I think enough of us have just enough of dead life to never actually catch life. God's offering is, embed- is better. It is imperishable, undefiled, unfading. Peter's reminding us of the truth that his rabbi has made clear a few decades before. Though God has this inheritance set up for us, he has put it there. Jesus Christ also, also talks about how we can invest in that eternity. In Matthew 6, 19 and 20, Do not lay up for yourself treasures on earth, where moth and rust destroy and where thieves break in and steal, but lay up for yourself treasures in heaven, where neither moth nor rust destroys and where thieves do not break in and steal. See, the things here on earth, they're perishable. They're defiled. They're fading. They can be taken from us. So what are those things that can last forever? What does it mean to invest in heaven? That sounds like a, where do I write that check, so to speak? Well, we know of three things that are eternal. We know people are eternal. When you invest in people's eternity, you're investing in something that's going to last forever. When you're investing in God's Word, when you're learning God's Word and studying God's Word, you're investing in something eternal. The grass withers and the flowers fall, but the Word of the Lord will stand forever. When you, um, when you invest in his church, you're investing in something that is eternal, the bride of Christ, the body of Christ. That is, that's, that's something that's eternal. And I don't just mean this building. Uh, this building will someday be wiped away. This property, I assume, will all be burned off the face of the earth with everything else. But the church, you, the people who are here and our opportunity to invest in the work of the church, I believe that's eternal and it goes on forever. But I think we think what we've got is too good because it's, it is so good in so many ways. We begin to feel at home here. Let me wrap up with this. Psalm 63. Psalm 63 troubles me. O God, you are my God. Earnestly I seek you. My soul thirsts for you. My flesh faints for you as in a dry and weary land where there is no water. I think because... We have it so good here, it's hard to remember that, that we actually live in a dry and weary land where there is no water. There seems to be so much stuff and so many things. I mean, there's buffets. We never have to be hungry. We never have to be thirsty. Food is cheap here. Calories are cheap here. We're warm all the time when we want to be warm, and we're cool when we want to be cool, and we're comfortable almost all the time. And so it's easy for us to forget that in the spiritual realm, everything is a dry well, except Christ. And when we seek fulfillment and value in ourselves, when we look for hope, 
The living hope, the living hope can only be found in Christ. Everything else is a dead hope. So I want to pray that God guides us, one, to recognize the truth that it's a dry and thirsty land where there is no water, and two, that we should earnestly seek and thirst and faint for Him. So stand, if you will, and let's pray together. Father, I thank you for these men and women who I love so dearly. I thank you that each and every one is an eternal person. Lord, I pray that everyone here who knows you would celebrate that and continue to find ways to open up their life, to connect to you, and experience the fullness of the newness of your life. Father, for anyone who doesn't know you, I pray, Lord, that they would come to know you now. They would recognize the truth of the dry and thirsty land. And spiritually speaking, would find their hope and their trust and their value in you instead. Thank you, Father, that the power of your word to give us the good news over and over again, sometimes every sentence, every phrase, and even every word. Lord, I pray that we will learn to live as beings, as people who have been born again. I pray this in the name of your magnificent Son. Amen. If you, um, as we sing, if you want to, uh, if you've already been through the welcome home process and you're ready to come join the church, we'd love for you to come do that this morning. If you need to come up here and pray for any reason or pray where you are, um, I'd love to encourage you to do that. However the Spirit leads you, um, just be listening as we have this time.